Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. You know, I find it really difficult to wake up in the morning, but I find it very easy to stay up till three working, but only if I'm really passionate about what I'm working on. We wake up the brilliant Tom Cridland, sustainable fashion designer, to find out exactly what he's getting passionate about. Stay tuned. Yes, hello, welcome back. This is episode 10 of The Better Business Show. Uh, very much appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for being there. And we're back to yeah some sort of normality after last week's ventures into London uh, for resource. Um, thank you so much for all the feedback uh, on that show, but also the previous shows that we continue to get from our listeners. Uh, it's great to hear from so many of you every week. Uh, about the range of different stories that we bring to you uh, and we've got a great growing community of listeners now and it's it's absolutely fantastic um, so before we get into the heart of this week's show and, and hear from our our brilliant guest this week we're going to check in with Vicky Knowles uh, and give you a quick rundown of the latest news and developments on companies that are doing their very best to be better hey Vix how you doing hey I'm good Tom how are you I'm good. Yeah, very good. good. Had a good week? Yeah, good, good. Um, just basically catching up on a bunch of stuff. So it's been it's been uh, fairly chilled, but good. Good, good stuff. Well, listen, let's let's find out what's been going on this week. I, I guess we should start really with the budget um, in the UK. So I thought I'd do a quick roundup of everything that was announced last week by George Osborne, now Chancellor. Apologies if you're not based in the UK, but maybe you'll find it interesting uh, to find out what we are doing or what we're not doing in, in supporting businesses that want to become low carbon. Uh, so, you know, the first thing, the carbon reduction commitment, which was originally seen as the most useful and effective way to help companies reduce their energy bills. The Chancellor uh, confirmed what we all knew. It was gonna, it's going to be abolished with effect from the end of the 2018-2019 compliance year. Uh, to balance the books, it's going to be replaced by an increase in the climate change levy from 2019, although this climate change levy rise does mean that renewable energy generators will now have to pay a higher tax. Um, on contracts for difference, the Chancellor confirmed that £730 million is going to be dedicated to the next wave of contracts for difference auctions for onshore wind. Uh, and other so-called less established technologies. So that's double the amount put into the first uh, CFD auction. So 730 million during this parliament is going to go towards helping support four gigawatts of offshore wind. Um, on energy storage and demand side response, something we've spoke about in before in, in the Better Business Show, uh, but following a report by the newly formed National Infrastructure Commission, uh, into the UK's future low carbon energy system. The budget document actually states that the government will allocate at least £50 million for innovation in energy storage, demand side response and other sort of smart technologies over the next five years. So that's, that's, that's a good thing, I guess. Um, on nuclear, the budget states the government's going to launch the first stage of a competition to identify a small modular nuclear reactor to be built in the UK and there's going to be a delivery roadmap next year or later this year I think which is going to allocate some, some funds towards uh, R&D uh, of, of what, what comes next in nuclear. On, on air quality, some interesting developments here, no real mention actually about air quality specifically but there is um, some commitments so there's going to be an extension of the 100% first year allowance for 
companies that want to buy low emission cars for a further three years. That runs up to April 2021. Um, we're, a reduction of the main rate threshold for capital allowances for business cars uh, to 110 grams uh, per kilometer of CO2. Um, and there's going to be a continuation to, to base company car tax on CO2 emissions of cars um, beyond 2020. So, um, you know, lo- lots of detail there, I know, but the budget was a bit of a mixed bag, to be honest. Lots of environmental campaigners and commentators were a bit perplexed by the fact that there wasn't more, really, on, on carbon and, and low-carbon policy, uh, especially given the fact that the day before last week's budget, it was announced that the UK will enshrine into law a long-term goal of reducing emissions to zero as called for in the Paris Agreement from last year. Uh, and we still really haven't seen the, this you know, this Conservative government here in the UK live up to the promises and pledges it made six years ago before it came into office, uh, at, you know, that it was going to lead the world in, in creating brilliant conditions for businesses to become more sustainable. We're just not seeing that yet. So so lots of detail in the budget, but uh, hopefully that gives you a bit of a flavour of, of what we what we experienced last week. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good rundown, Tom. Very clear, step by step. Um, as you say, people are pretty perplexed by um, this kind of mixed bag and the kind of gap between words and action. I mean, um, he's kind of saying it's for the next generation, and yet climate change is what really needs to be tackled if that's to be taken seriously. Um, I mean, on the new renewable energy front, it maybe it'll be up to businesses and NGOs to close the gap overseas. I mean, obviously, this isn't in the UK, but an example of this recently is um, Patagonia funding solar rooftop installations on 1,500 homes in the States. So along with four other B Corps, the group is leveraging their tax dollars to bring solar power to the people. Together, mm-hmm. they've created um, a $35 million tax equity fund, which will allow them to invest in clean energy and make good returns too. So over 20 years, the systems are expected to produce 200 million kilowatt hours of electricity, which is the equivalent of taking 30,000 cars off the road. So big impact there. Um, and Sorry, you go ahead. <laughs> well, no, I think that, you know, the B Corps movement hasn't really taken off here in the UK. Obviously, it's a, it's a big thing in the States, uh, but it's quite something. And perhaps we'll look into it a bit more detail in a future episode. Uh, but I love the idea of the B Corps using the fact that they are this kind of club of sorts to collaborate and get schemes like this off the ground so many good reasons to invest in in solar but of course you know you need the money to stump up front to to kind of make it viable and i think if you can you can club together in such a way then and really sort of make it work i think it's a a great thing Uh, another interesting story from from this week from from me there's a guy called jeremy rosal who's set to fly a plane from san francisco to alaska so it's three thousand mile trip in a plane powered by recycled plastic and it's uh, the so-called wings of waste flight uh, was inspired by Rosal's regular flights over the Pacific where he saw firsthand the devastating plastic pollution swimming around in the ocean. Uh, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, I think we mentioned this a few weeks back, but they, they say that at least 8 million tonnes of plastics end up in our oceans every year and by 2050 there could be more plastic than fish in our oceans. You know, it's a staggering fact. So this plane is using some of that waste plastic as aviation fuel. 
And uh, it's a story that's got the legendary broadcaster Sir David Attenborough very excited. He says it's a, a sign of hope in a very depressing world, is what he said about it. Um, but Rosal says that the plastic to oil technology creates fuel that's more efficient, it's cleaner, and can reduce emissions by up to 70%. He's got a crowdfunding page on Indiegogo. Uh, so apparently if you donate some money to his campaign then you might get your name inscribed on the side of the plane. Uh, so, yeah, interesting one, this one. Um, yeah, Tom, I think that's absolutely brilliant. Um, and that fact about more plastic than fish in the oceans by 2050 is just so shocking. So demonstrating applications um, like this is amazing. And the fact that Attenborough is behind it really puts it in the spotlight as well. Um, so speaking of Indiegogo, Unilever is teaming up with the platform, tapping into crowdfunding to accelerate sustainable innovation. Um, so Unilever brands will submit challenges for social entrepreneurs to suggest solutions. The community is encouraged to collaborate and build on ideas, and it'll also help establish consumer validation early on in the innovation process. So Unilever is hoping that will speed development up from years to months and basically help them make smarter product and investment decisions. I mean, when you think of crowdfunding, you probably think of startups or one-man bands rather than big corps. But actually, it's not a totally new thing. Obviously, it's not about the money, but in this example, it's tapping into innovation and providing market research. And then there's companies like Coca-Cola who use it to give back to the community by supporting local projects or small businesses. Yeah, it's, it's, it's brilliant. There's lots of great elements to this. Obviously, you've got the crowdfunding element. You've got the kind of, you know, the bid to innovate and find new ideas from new places and uh, using, sort of, you know, web technology to efficiently find those ideas is, is a great concept. Very sort of Unilever thing to do, I think. Uh, but, you know, and they, they recognise that if you can bring consumers with you from the start, then, you know, there's much more chance of, of getting uh, in getting traction. Uh, not the first time we've mentioned Unilever on the show, probably won't be the last, and we make no apologies for that, because they're just so, I don't know, they're just so far ahead in many areas of, of trying to be a better business. I mean, it's, uh, it's brilliant. Another great example from Unilever. So, uh, yeah, so thanks, Vix. Thanks for your, for your updates. Plenty going on out there, and, um, and we'll hear from you again next week. Anytime. Uh, see you next week. This episode of The Better Business Show is sponsored by Narrative Matters, creating content that sings for organisations that want to change the world. For more details about how we can help you develop amazing content that really works, check out narrativematters.co.uk. In 2011, the outdoor clothing company Patagonia did something brilliant. It ran a unique ad campaign designed to flatter consumers into thinking they don't care about material goods. And it ran these huge one-page ad campaigns featuring one of the company's beautiful winter fleece jackets with the slogan, Don't Buy This Jacket. And it did something that few ad campaigns had ever done before. It asked, or rather instructed, their customers to restrain themselves. Presenting a photo of one of its fantastic products, it then told customers to refrain from buying it impulsively or lustfully or to otherwise buy something that they just don't need. Of course, it was hugely clever. The campaign did its utmost to explain that shopping is bad because the garment industry is wasteful. But, you know, if you have to buy something, you're probably best off buying the least sinful option, one of our beautiful Patagonia fleeces. And the anti-shopping movement has grown exponentially in recent years, largely as a sort of backlash to the re annual retail events like Black Friday, which encourage consumers 
to buy as much as they can. The upscale fleece company, REI, decided to close its doors on Black Friday last year. Instead, it runs a social media campaign, hashtag optoutside, to promote that very fact, and it invites its band of loyal customers to share the fact that rather than going shopping on a day when stuff's on sale, you're going to be scaling a mountain or paddling down a creek or doing something a lot more interesting outside. Of course, Black Friday events have surfaced on this side of the Atlantic too, here in the UK, and it's become quite a thing. But even Asda, part of the Walmart group, took a stand last year to not partake in flash sales like Black Friday, which have in the past led to full-scale riots in some stores as people try to get their hands on cut-price flat-screen TVs. Patagonia's ad campaign was less about anti-shopping and more about encouraging people to think before they buy. And if you're going to buy something, then choose something that really lasts. Fashion and apparel has a big problem, as we know, particularly fast fashion. The sort of stuff sold by the high street retail chains like Primark or Topshop, H&M. According to Wrap, £140 million worth of clothing, that's 350,000 tonnes of used clothing, goes into landfill in the UK every year. That's about 30% of our unwanted clothing. Now, people like to stay on top of the latest fashion trends, we get that, but clearly that comes at a price. It's a trend that's not likely to go away anytime soon. You only have to go into your high street on a Saturday afternoon and see all the kids pouring into Topshop to buy a new top or something they'll probably only wear once. But there are a growing band of businesses that promote a built-to-last mentality, encouraging people to only buy something they will use again and again that has legs that is sustainable. And our guest this week has built his business on this very concept. Tom Cridland is a luxury fashion designer with a range of clothing for which he offers a 30-year guarantee. He's a fascinating chap and I'll let him tell the story this week so you can find out exactly how he plans to turn the fashion industry on its head. Tom, thanks for joining us here on The Better Business Show. Delighted to have you with us. Um, maybe as a starting point, Tom, you could, in a nutshell, try and describe very briefly what it is you do because I think you know, luxury fashion designer probably doesn't really cut it as a descriptor. So, so give us, give us the, the, kind of the elevator pitch. What are you up to? Uh, well, firstly, thank you very much for having me. And in terms of describing what I do in a nutshell, um, I would describe us as an international sustainable fashion brand making luxury clothing in unique colours with customers on five continents. Okay, that is very succinct and I think very well, well, well versed. So the, <laughs> what, what caught my eye in, in coming across what you're up to is, is the 30-year guarantee that you're, you're giving to your t-shirts and your sweatshirts, which I think you, you say started as a project and then has really sort of turned into a, an, into a brand, I guess. Um, you're getting lots of attention, particularly here in the UK, but also I know in the US. What, what were you trying to achieve with this? Um, I thought it would be good to try to emphasize that wardrobe staples should not be churned out in a manner where they last for only one or two years. Um, and I thought it'd be interesting also to try and get people and not just people who are interested in sustainability or people who already buy from ethical fashion brands, but the general public to think about how they consume fashion. So that was the premise um, for trying to work on a sustainable fashion project. Right. Um, and so I decided that the best way to encourage people uh, to think about how long um, they keep items 
and particularly items that, if they didn't wear out, mm. they would keep them. So something like a plain-coloured sweatshirt, which will quite happily sit in your wardrobe, and you get it out, um, you know, whenever whenever you're slobbing around at home or whenever you're going out to something casual or whatever it is. Um, there's not really m- much reason to replace it unless it wears out. So yeah. I decided the best way to get people thinking about how long they keep these type of items was to put a guarantee on it, not a not a lifetime guarantee, not a sort of gimmick, but an actual length of time that is concrete and that, that people will think about, but also one that was eye-catching uh, because not many people um, in this industry are willing to make the clothing properly and then guarantee it for, for, the, for, for a length of time like 30 years. Uh, but the fact is there are other brands um, who make sweatshirts that last for 30 years. Uh, but, mm. but they don't particularly want to guarantee them and encourage their customers to keep them for 30 years because they want their customers to come back. Sure, yeah, yeah. So what, what's the deal? I mean, <coughs> I mean, something like a T-shirt, obviously not known necessarily for their the sort of longevity, not like a you know winter coat or something, but what, what's the deal? If I rip my, my T-shirt that I've bought from you, you, you just send me a new one, do you? Um, well, it depends how, how grave, grave the rip is. If the rip is fixable um, with stitch work and, and with a repair, then we'll repair it. Um, because we don't want to just be, you know, as a sustainable fashion project, it's not sustainable either for us as a business, but also it's not very, um, you know, environmentally friendly to be uh, wasting natural resources by dishing out replacement after replacement. Right. Um, so where possible, we do repair. Okay, um, okay. With, with a, t- a T-shirt, is not necessarily known for its longevity, but one would expect a T-shirt's production cost to be significantly less than that of the sweatshirt. But, but actually, the 30-year T-shirt... Um, is is genuinely more of a project for us than than, than a money spinner. I mean, the markup that we get on that isn't actually really workable. Um, the t- the thirty year t shirt is is nearly as much as the thirty year sweatshirt to produce. Right. Um, so it is an incredibly well made t shirt, and cer- certainly um, it is based on a model that has been shown to last for thirty years. Okay, okay. So where, where your t shirts and your sweatshirts made from cotton, right? Yes, well, the sweatshirt is about to be moved over to 100% cotton. Okay. We finally found a design where I feel that it's mobile and comfortable and functional enough without polyester content. Uh, but previously, it had 20% polyester content just to allow it to stretch sufficiently over the course of 30 years. And, and, where, and where is everything made, Tom? Where, where are you making stuff? Everything is made, um, first of all, it was made in Portugal. Okay. Um, that's where we developed the, the concept, and we've just been to Harma um, in Italy, which um, has about three or four different suppliers who we're now going to be partnering up with. Which I feel is a step forward in, in quality. Um, it's it's also a step a step up in terms of how much we're spending in production. Uh, yeah. But I think with with the claims that we're making, we we, we need to uh, to always strive to improve quality and get get truly world class. Um, production teams um, make, making making our products, and and I'm very open about the fact that this is a learning experience for me. You know, I, I started in the fashion um, industry two years ago with no experience and no business experience either. Mm. Um, I think I think a lot of our customers and followers um, in, in, enjoy that fact and, and and like following the story. Yeah. Um, so so I, you know, I, I just I, I sort of love keeping everyone um, and love keeping them up to date on challenges that I'm facing and, and progress and uh, what, what we're up to now and what we're trying to achieve. 
And um, so, yeah, it's, it's very exciting that, that we're moving production over there. Um, and uh, it's a shame in a way to be moving from Portugal because I'm half Portuguese. But Debs, who's my girlfriend, who um, runs the business with me, um, we've been together for six years now and she's just started officially working full time alongside me. But obviously, since the very beginning, she's been kind of working on it um, alongside me. Um, and she's half Italian, so at least there's a, <laughs> at least we're sort of keeping it, it keeping it um, close to, to uh, you know, where, where, where our roots are. <laughs> indeed, indeed. I mean, think about cotton. I mean, we all know the problems with cotton. Well, actually, we don't all know, but, uh, you know, incredibly thirsty crop, often grown in, in places where there's little water. Then there's the whole kind of forced labory stuff, the slavery, slavery stories that are coming out of Uzbekistan, places like that. How do you know the cotton you're using is absolutely sound? Um, because it's sourced from an extremely, um, well, I know that they're extremely ethical. I know that they're extremely high quality. Um, we source it from Biella in northern Italy, um, or rather our, our suppliers do. Um, but given the fact that we make um, wardrobe staples, essentially, um, we, we make um, our, our designs are simple, but there's a personality injected behind them. Um, one of the first things when actually talking about making our clothing is, is the fabric. It's quality, uh, where it comes from. Um, so that's, that's the first thing we really establish. Yeah. So, and, and presumably you're paying a premium for that, right, aren't you? Uh, well, yeah, we are. I mean, we're, we're paying a pre- premium for the fabric. Um, we're paying a premium for the... the quality of the workmanship um, and, our, and our production costs are expensive and that's why despite interest from people like Saks Avenue um, we, we can't stop at, at the big third party retailers the markups don't work and I'd have to change my brand entirely I, mm. I we pride ourselves on selling direct to customer because it allows us to not have any sort of unnecessary markup why should um, why should you as a consumer have to pay um, for Saks Fifth Avenue to rent their expensive shop, you shouldn't. You should just have to pay for the production cost of of the clothing and for the business costs of the designer. Really? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's obviously lots of, of of issues with with kind of the fashion sector, particularly fast fashion. But what what are the big problems you see? I mean, you've been on record saying I think that you know there's too much focus on quantity, not enough on quality, but you know, what are you trying to achieve with your brand to, to kind of counter some of the, the things you're seeing in the fashion sector? Um, well, th- what I was just going into um, in terms of retail markup is, is very important to what I'm trying to achieve. Because I'm trying, I'm trying to take that level of quality that you see on Bond Street or on Rodeo Drive and basically make it accessible. And so, you know, our price point has been described by many people who have advised me as too awkward, and you need to change it, you need to make it more expensive, you need to, it looks suspiciously cheap, um, I mean, which I don't, which I don't think is good advice. Um, <laughs> but essentially, it's just trying to make, fa- make that fashion, make, make fashion that is made with more care, and made better, um, make that accessible, um, and un- under the philosophy, you know, buy less and buy better. Sure, sure, but but does your does your business model stack up? You mentioned earlier that the, the t-shirt doesn't really. I mean, the you know the the, the model for your t-shirt sales and it doesn't really work right now. How are you going to sustain this business? Well, the, the model for the for the trousers and for the, for the sweatshirt and for the jacket works okay. The model for the t-shirt 
um, is one where we basically don't make any money on it, but we don't lose any money. Mm. Um, so our business is going to be sustainable because of the fact that we constantly are cre- we constantly want to create new things. Uh, I enjoy I, I enjoy what I do so much, and, it, and it's really um, because of the opportunity to be creative. And if, if I wanted to, um, I could probably just sit back now and start releasing the thirty year keyring, the thirty year uh, you know neck warmer, the thirty year everything, um, yeah. and just just do that. But I don't want to. And the thirty year effort is going to be the final thirty year project we release. We'll continue selling the thirty year sweater. But the next thing that I want to do, I do want it to be sustain, uh, you know, with a sustainable focus. But I want it to be something completely different. Sure, sure. And I guess crucially, as you mentioned at the outset, Tom, it, this is also about reaching out to those consumers that are not necessarily the ethical consumers that aren't necessarily thinking about this stuff. You're trying to kind of change the way people shop, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. We're not. We're interested in people who who are already interested in in ethical fashion. But they're the people who, who will have found us first. Mm. Um, I think that the concept of 30 years sweatshirt is one that appeals to many people because they find it a bit of fun. Um, and, but, then, but then with that, they start thinking about the serious issues anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, do, do you think you will ever get through to the, you know, and, and try to convert those that are so kind of... Uh, engaged in fast fashion. I think there was a study by Bernardo's you know, that said that, you know, just seven yeah. wares is the average number for each item of clothing bought. I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, I think there is a, there's a big pressure in women's wear um, to constantly have a new outfit and follow the season's trends. And I, I, I don't really see that going away. Um, but we'll, we'll do our best um, when we start tackling women's wear properly in 2017, um, which is when, when that's slated for. Okay, um, okay. I, I think it's important to make to make the point by by less by better because it definitely applies to women's wear. You know, you can tell if someone if someone's dress is is a cheap dress, you know, a badly made cheap dress from Primark. Mm. I, I think much better to buy to buy one that's actually made made very well, even if it means sacrificing, um, you know, wearing something different ten times from yeah. Primark. Much yeah. nicer to have a very high quality dress that you can keep for ages. Yeah, what, you're not what, want to keep. You're not going to want to keep that that vintage Primark in, in your wardrobe. If you go out and you buy, you know, say you're dressed for Primark thirty quid, and you want mm. and you buy ten, I, I think it's better to go out to Diane von Fostenberg and, and buy buy what, you know, sure. and, then, and then then at least and then at least you want to keep it. What, why didn't you start with women's wear, Tom? Why didn't I? Yeah, uh, because I because I had to. Well, because I wanted to start with something that I knew. I'm not a fashion designer by trade. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm nothing by trade, really. I'm, I'm a university <laughs> resident who started this business. So, so I decided to go with what I know because I was interested in menswear, uh, and because I'm a guy, and that's what I shot, and, and that's where sort of where my designs came came from. Yeah. Uh, right. So, I, I, so wear would have been too much of a reach, really. I mean, aside from shopping for my girlfriend, I don't really know anything about it. <laughs> and so I'm, um, having to work, I'm having to work very hard on, on uh, you know, getting some knowledge um, yeah. in, 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 in that field, really. So what, what is your background? What did you study? Um, I studied modern languages, and to be honest with you, I just stopped around at university. I did get a 2-1, um, and I met my girlfriend, and that's, you know, turned out to be a, a wonderful relationship, and we're now business partners, and we've been together for six years. Um, and many of my best friends. So it was, it was great. I learned how to cook, but I didn't really do anything uh, 
academic, I have to say. <laughs> so when did this interest in, in in kind of fashion and 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 you know creating your own brand start? When did that st- where did that come from? That would have been towards the end of my um, end of my time at university. I started started developing this idea. Um, I've always been entrepreneurial, so that's probably where this this came this came from uh, mainly. Um, so yeah, I mean when I was when I was like ten, I had a bootleg CD business. When I was eighteen, I had a business that lasted a week, which was um, selling T-shirts with the slogan Swine 09 on. Um, in the end, I, me, me and my friend who, who started it um, sold £3,000 worth of, of Swine 09 sweatshirts in a week. Um, and then we got cold feet about profiteering off Swine Free, so we gave the money to Medicine Sans Frontier. Um, so that was another entrepreneurial venture. <laughs> um, and then um, there was just around, just before... I started, you know, Tom Tom Finland and our fashion brand. Um, I had a we had a business, um, Dead Tonight, which was charging phones at festivals, and we did we did one festival called Why Not, which I think won the prize for best medium festival. Um, and you know that, that's really an industry where you need to have a custom made van and and um, you need to have relationships with many of the festival organisers. We only managed to get one contract. Um, and we had sort of, you know, a, a, a marquee saying phone bar on and we bought all the equipment off Amazon and we really boot, bootstrapped it. It was a great, great experience learning how everything worked. Um, you know, we put five grand in, five grand, um, uh, we, we got five grand in sales. Um, so we completely <laughs> broke even. Uh, lots of hard work, very underwhelming. Um, and that was really an idea, you know, because I, I, I was sort of like, oh, well, I really want to make a living as, as an entrepreneur. Mm. How, how do we do that? Um, and then I started approaching it more from the perspective of what do I think I can offer? What, what in terms of design can I offer? Um, and, and I realized that, you know, menswear is somewhere where um, I, can, I can bring my talents and actually do something a bit different, uh, whereas phone charging at festivals isn't, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so what's the kind of the, the mid to long term plan for, for the business? I mean, do, is it right that you're launching in the US this week? Uh, yes, we fly this afternoon. Um, over to New York to do some press. So in the very short term, we're going to be in New York doing press. Um, then we're going to go over to LA and we're doing more press. And, and I'm also speaking about entrepreneurship and innovation at some universities like UCLA and Long, Long Beach City College, um, San Diego Mesa, um, California State, um, you know, a few, a few univer- universities. Yeah, and um, a, tra- so a chance to get in front of your customers, I guess. A chance to get in front of my customers, yeah, and and, and a bit of fun as well, um, yeah. because um, you know doing doing press is is one thing, but actually um, giving giving a speech in front of um, you know students who might kind of be thinking, why on earth are we here? Because some of these these things won't be optional, and some of these things will be like a class, so some people will just be sitting there asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to try and wake them up as as a former student who slept through most of his lessons and lectures <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're entrepreneurial in spirit tom and i i wonder whether kind of you know innovators and disruptors like yourselves are interested in ever jumping into a corporate and trying to kind of affect change from the inside rather than kind of sitting on the on the outside is that has that ever appealed to you um i have to say that unfortunately my temperament does not suit working for anyone else um, which is, is which actually sounds like an incredibly conceited and arrogant thing to say. 
uh, but it's not because I really like I, I I don't mind you know I'm happy to I'm happy to make a very modest living working for myself and and you know until until things really took off I made an extremely modest living um, from from working on my brand um, but I love I, I don't really like you know like a vulture breathing down my neck telling me what to do I find I find it really difficult um, I, and I also I, I suffer from a lack of motivation when 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 I'm not um, given the freedom to work on my own ideas I'm also terrible in the morning. <laughs> so, so you know, I find it really difficult to wake up in the morning, but I find it very easy to stay up till three working, but only if I'm really passionate about what I'm working on. So, you know, sometimes I like to work till three and then get up at 10. If I'm working in a corporate, maybe now I, I could work in a corporate and they'd say, you know, do whatever you want, but just make sure that you deliver your results like you did for your own brand. Mm. They probably would say that now. But when I was applying for jobs and stuff, you know, I saw... Um, I, at one stage, I was applying for law jobs. I went for an interview at Slaughter in May, and they had sort of what looked like prison cells in, in the basement. And they and they said, <laughs> "Oh, it's brilliant down here because if you're working late on a deal, you can even sleep in the office." So I was just thinking, "God, this sounds like a nightmare." And and and, 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 and two of my best friends are, are corporate lawyers, and they're extremely talented, and they're they're going to make an excellent living. And what they do is very interesting. If you're chatting with, uh, to them about it, you know, in the pub. I just wouldn't be able to do it myself, and that's why. And, and they probably would hate to to run a menswear brand themselves. Everybody has 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 what they're what they're sort of suited to. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I like the idea on paper of affecting change at, at a corporate. But how much change and how much freedom um, I'd, I'd be given, I, I I think it'd be pretty negligible, really. So I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm happy working on my own projects. Well, it sounds like you've you've made the right decision working for yourself. It sounds like you're having lots of fun with it. I mean, you know, what, what's the kind of the, the most challenging thing about running this business for you right now? Um, right now, it's just making that transition from uh, bootstrap startup to serious business, uh, which is why Deb's quit her job at Universal um, because she's got a, de- a degree um, in business and management from London Business School. She knows how how the numbers work, um, and I don't, and I'm not interested. Um, to be honest, um, so we need we need to sort of get we're just getting organised really. Um, yeah. That that's and 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 moving production to Italy was was sort of a decision that that we didn't take lightly because it's it's it, it is going to make things more expensive. But that was an, another thing improving improving the production to a point where where we don't feel it could possibly be improved. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know now now I don't think we could find a better a better quality um, sweatshirt, better quality pair of trousers. Um, than, than the ones that, that, that we've, uh, you know, designed and, and created in Italy. Um, to, in order for us to change our production, you know, someone would literally have to come with a finished sample for me for me to have a look at, um, and I'd have to think it was better. And you know, I, I'm not going to go out and search for anything better than this because this is, I think, this is, you know, <laughs> this is the, this is the glass ceiling. Sure. Well, I, I'm looking forward to getting my hands on one of your one of your sweatshirts. I'm in the market for a sweatshirt right now. I'm going to go to is it TomCridland.com, Tom? Or? Yes, yes, it is TomCridland.com. <laughs> Great stuff. I encourage our listeners to do the same. Um, it sounds like things are going from strength to strength. Uh, we wish you all the best over in the states this week uh, with oh, the launch so over there, and uh, and good luck with everything in the future. But thanks very much for uh, yeah giving some time on the Better Business Show, Tom. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It's really admirable what you're doing, and uh, and I hope people will continue to, to listen every week. And I'm going to go back now and uh, and listen to some of the previous episodes. It's very impressive to get in the new and noteworthy section. Um, and I know from my experiences with, uh, with doing Kickstarters that it's crucial. 
So, uh, so yeah, congratulations on, on everything that you've, you've achieved as well. Thanks very much, Tom. Speak to you soon. Tom Cridland there. Uh, and Tom was just about to get on a plane to New York, so he'll be in the US in the coming weeks, and I'm sure the, the US media will lap him up over there. So look out for him if you're on that side of the pond. But fascinating to meet a fashion designer with such passion to do things differently and uh, and to learn from the mistakes of the past, really. Check out this week's show notes, which accompany this edition of the Better Business Show. We've got some pics on there of Tom's uh, 30-year T-shirts and sweatshirts, and there's some images of the man himself, so do check those out. So there are plenty of ways to keep up to date with the Better Business Show. You can sign up to our weekly newsletter, our mailer that goes out on a Friday. Just go to betterbusiness.show and you'll find the form. Just give us your email address and we'll email you every week. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Tom Idle, where I give regular updates on the show. And of course, you can subscribe via iTunes. Just search for The Better Business Show on iTunes and you hit the subscribe button and away you go. We're also available on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on uh, TuneIn, on Deezer. So loads of options for you to tune in. So you know, take your pick of those. Um, and of course, if you like what you what you're hearing on the show, please do tell your friends and family and colleagues about us and and encourage them to tune in and subscribe as well. Um, but that's it for this week. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye. <laughs>